So the reading is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. I was um, I was asked recently, quite out of the blue, to um, to give some feedback on some uh, chapters that had been written about Christianity for a new, uh, soon to be published uh, textbook on religious education for 11 to 14 year olds, and um, it was a sobering read. The core narrative of Christianity went like this: uh, that. Uh, God essentially sent Jesus, his son, to come and uh, tell us what God is like and show us essentially how God wants us to live. And uh, the way to please God and the way to uh, get to heaven uh, is the way of living as hard as you can like Jesus tells you to live or to live as as hard as you can, like Jesus, in that sense. That is to say uh, that uh, the way to God, the way to heaven, is the way of moral goodness. Uh, Live rightly, and you will be right with God. Moral effort earns God's favor. Which saddened me, but I have to say it didn't surprise me. Uh, That is the dominant cultural narrative of Christianity, isn't it? Those who believe in Christianity or... um, uh, or sorry, those who don't believe in Christianity, our culture around us, the secular culture, if you ask them essentially what Christianity teaches, uh, that, that is the narrative they're going to give you, I would think, 99 times out of 100. It's a very powerful narrative, it seems. It's a very powerful narrative. Our hearts, in a sense, warm to it. It feels right in our hearts that you earn God's love by being good. I want to say I think it's quite a popular religious narrative, too. Uh, in um, uh, other religions, certainly. But I think, as we'll see, we'll come back to this, it can bubble up in our own faith 
even though it is the complete, in one sense, the complete opposite of our faith. It's a very popular narrative. It isn't a new narrative, however. It was the dominant narrative in Jesus' day. Um, we started a series, well, the 11.15 had, a, a, had a, a, a sermon on the parable last week, but for the, for the 9.30 amongst us, uh, we started a series on, on, on the parables. And I want to start by saying that Jesus' parables are powerful. In fact, they are as powerful as they are shocking. Um, many people, after they heard Jesus give uh, one of these parables, wanted to kill him which alerts us, I think, to the fact that they're not simply sort of cozy fireside stories. Uh, they are, as I heard one speaker put it recently, they were told in order to challenge and to undercut the dominant cultural and religious narratives of the day. They were hugely explosive, hugely controversial. Jesus came to tell a new story about God and about us, one that was radically countercultural and indeed radically the counter-religious narrative too. And therefore they were highly controversial. God's story always subverts our cultures. And the truth of this very short uh, but explosive uh, parable is this. You can be just as far from God living a moral life as you are living an immoral life. Or to put it another way, a moral life can be as much an act of rebellion against God as an immoral one. A moral life can be as much a mechanism of avoiding God as an immoral one. How can that be? Well, it is because the Lord Jesus came as both Lord and Savior both equally important aspects of who he is and who he is to be for us. And so you can reject him by refusing his lordship. You can reject him by refusing his right to rule. You can reject him, therefore, if you like, in a life of immorality. But you can just as easily reject him by refusing your need to be rescued. You can reject his, the saviour aspect of who he is and what he has come to do. You can reject him as Lord, but you can just as easily reject him as Savior. You can reject him through a moral life. You can reject him through an immoral life. So contrary to the dominant narratives of our day, life in all its fullness is not found in immorality, as some would say, self-expression, or indeed, neither is it found in uh, the life of morality, and self-control, and conforming to your culture's norms and status quos. Rather, it is, says Jesus, to be found in God's mercy. As uh, Tom said, parables, um, or alluded to, parables uh, act a little bit like mirrors. Uh, Jesus holds them up, and we're invited to look, and to see uh, ourselves in them. Or or, or at least to see, is there an aspect of myself in in, in this character? Is there something here? Is there a warning here? Do I get glimpses of myself in one of these characters and to act accordingly? The religious narrative is powerful that we earn our way into God's good books and into eternal life. And it can bubble up in us, even those of us who know God's mercy and who, who, who absolutely understand that we're saved by grace. Nevertheless, this is a story that is powerful, that the human heart warms to. And so I want us to think as we go through this, is there any sense in which this story, this narrative, is it just slightly bubbling up in my heart? Is it playing in the background in a damaging way? 
So friends, let's look briefly at the two characters in the parable, and then we'll draw some implications. We start with the Pharisee. So as Tom said, here is the uh, quintessential, morally upright, religious role model in the community. He approaches God with a confidence. He has, he believes, a... um, should we say a right to be in God's presence, a right for his prayers to be heard? Where does his confidence come from? Well, Luke tells us in the introduction, verse 9, and we're on page 1052. If you want to double-check that what I'm saying is coming from the Scriptures. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. In other words, here is somebody who's placed their confidence in their own righteousness. His confidence comes from within. It is a confidence we discover that is built on two uh, pillars. Here is the first, comparison with others. God, I thank you that I'm not like. That's the heart of it, isn't it? God, I thank you that I'm not like X, Y, this tax collector here. Comparison and secondly, his credentials. I I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all I get. So his confidence, his righteousness that he thinks uh, gives him a right to stand in God's presence, that he's right with God, that he can pray, comes from this comparison with others and with these credentials of religious observance. The kind of person I am and the kind of life I'm leading means that I have the right to be here before you. I am acceptable because I'm not like others, I'm morally upright. And indeed he is, of course. We're not supposed to think that he isn't in that sense. Of course he is. He's hugely morally upright. That's why the whole point, of the, that's why the parable is shocking. When Jesus says he is far from God, that would have drawn gasps. When Jesus says that his confidence is entirely misjudged, it would have drawn gasps from the crowd. And it's entirely misjudged because it is entirely misplaced. And so we come to the tax collector. The tax collector, of course, you all know, um, these were uh, thieves in many ways. The Romans said, uh, we want X amount of tax from that uh, local area that you, we put you over. And so they would take twice the amount of tax, for instance, keep half, give half the Romans. The Romans didn't, couldn't care less how much you took, so long as they got the slice that they had asked for. So would have been, a, uh, therefore, a thief. Uh, he would have been seen very much as a collaborator, of course, working for the Romans. Uh, and so he would have been uh, a despised uh, outcast in the community. Notice how he comes. He comes with no self-confidence. He knows where he stands, as it were. Knows what he deserves. Stands at a distance. Doesn't even look up to heaven. Uh, and yet, from that posture of humility... That posture of honesty, he prays, well, what does it say? He beats his breast, uh, which was the ancient posture of uh, repentance. And he prays a prayer of repentance, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So there are no excuses here, um, no mitigating circumstances. He's not claiming any rights, doesn't point to any aspects of goodness in his life, although I'm sure he could have done. I'm sure he's not supposed to be uh, entirely a reprobate. I'm sure there are good things that he could have pointed to, but he doesn't do that. He says, I'm I'm relying entirely on your mercy. This is simply a plea for God to be a gracious savior towards him. 
And we know from the end of the story that God is delighted to be just that. His prayer is met by God's embrace, says Jesus. And the lesson Jesus says we are to learn is that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Why? And the answer, I think, as we read the rest of the New Testament and particularly the rest of the Gospels, is this. He who has confidence in themselves has no place for Christ. That is to say, the extent to which we exalt ourselves is the extent to which we negate our need for Christ as Savior. The extent to which we rely on our goodness is the extent to which we will find ourselves sidelining God's graciousness. We will never accept Jesus as Savior if fundamentally we do not think that we need saving. Christ comes as God's means of reaching out to us, of establishing a relationship with us, and of lifting us up to God's side. And therefore, to reject him, or to sideline him, or to relegate him, or to negate him, is to precisely reject the means by which we are truly exalted. But he who is humble, he who knows himself to be a sinner, will, like this tax collector, run to God's mercy, embrace God's mercy, and find themselves embraced by God's mercy. What are the implications for us? Well, for those here looking into Christianity, and I know we always have uh, some who uh, wouldn't yet call themselves Christians and are looking into uh, the Christian faith, and you're in absolutely the right place to do so, um, I hope you see what a radical message Jesus is telling here, how it subverts the dominant cultural and many of the dominant religious narratives of our own day. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, I got this from uh, one uh, Tim Keller, uh, who's written a lot on this, very helpfully, a pastor in New York, said this, the two basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment is the way of moral conformity or the way of self-discovery. And he says the way you see that is you look at culture and you see that it often tends to divide between the conservatives, by which he means sort of culturally, as it were, rather than politically, although they sometimes go hand in hand, uh, the conservatives and what you might call the liberal progressives. Uh, one advocates you know, life would be great if everyone just followed the rules and stuck to social norms and, you know, whatever that might be, the conservatives. Others say, no, it's about self-expression and being who we think we are, and, uh, and that's what the, the progressives. Salvation, however you define it, is either found in some form of self-discipline or some form of self-expression. Do you see how Jesus' story undercuts both of those narratives? He doesn't come to endorse either of those as the road to salvation, neither the moral life of the Pharisee nor, notice, nor the immoral one of the tax collector proves to be the road to salvation. The tax collector comes knowing he needs salvation, having lived the immoral life. He's not endorsing the immoral life, neither is he endorsing the moral life as the tax collector was leading it. Tim Keller puts it like this, the gospel of Jesus is neither religion nor irreligion. It's not morality nor immorality. It's not moralism or relativism. It's not conservatism or liberalism. And this is key. Nor is it something halfway along the spectrum between those poles. It is rather, he says, something else altogether. That's right. Jesus teaches a radically new way, a third way. As radical now as it was then. 
His message is this, you don't find salvation in morality, and you don't find it in immorality, you find it in me. That's his message, you find it in me. It is rooted in mercy, not merit. Salvation is a gift to be received, not a salary to be earned. Salvation is Jesus moving into our lives as Lord and Savior. So yes, there will be transformation. The Christian life will be a a moral one insofar as that means it will be one that's uh, seeking to become increasingly like that of the Lord Jesus because he moves in as Lord with a right to rule. But he also moves in as Savior. And just as he is always Lord, so too he is always day by day Savior too. And morality can't save us because we'll always fall short. We always need Jesus to save us. So it is not the way of immorality because that denies Christ's lordship. It is not the way, to, it is not the way of morality in and of itself because that denies Christ's salvation. It is the way of Christ which brings with it transformation and the power to transform our lives, to live God's new life that is his gift to us in Jesus Christ. But our our moral lives that we start to live as Christians do not earn our salvation. They simply express it. They do not earn God's new life. They simply express the new life of God that we receive through his mercy and grace. Do you see? If that's news to you, uh, then can I say, grab a gospel. There's always a couple at the back that are free. Uh, Grab a gospel and read it, and you will discover uh, that this is uh, indeed the truth of it. Jesus comes with a radical new way. For us who know this truth and who delight in this truth, that we are saved by grace and God's mercy, uh, Keller's point often in his writings, and I think it's helpful, is that nevertheless this narrative that um, somehow we need to earn God's love, that somehow God is more favorable towards us the, the better we are and the better we're doing, um, it's a powerful one. And he says quite often we start the Christian life like the tax collector, utterly dependent on God's mercy. But as time goes on, we can begin to... That narrative that was playing in the Pharisee's heart can begin to play in ours. We can begin to resemble the Pharisee a little bit. What would it look like to begin to, uh, for, for that narrative of the Pharisee, just to begin to play in the background of our hearts? Well, judging by this parable, it might begin to look like a sense of superiority, as it did in the Pharisee. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. said this, If we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, and above that, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that that is not from God. So we want to be alert to that sense of superiority, because that means that religious narrative of earning, of, of being on a ladder, getting closer to God through what we do, might just be playing. Paradoxically, it also comes, of course, with a sense of insecurity, a growing sense of superiority coupled to a growing sense of insecurity. Because, of course, if you believe that to some extent God's favor towards you is is determined by uh, your uh, moral credentials, then there'll always be that sense of, well, am I being moral enough? Quite often it turns uh, our, 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 our life of righteousness, our moral life that we're wishing to lead in the power of Christ, it, it gets turned into a mechanical, a cold, mechanical obedience. Uh, the Christian life 
we start to think that the Christian life sort of has to be lived to impress God, rather than the Christian life gets to be lived because this is the best way to live. This is, this is the way that our good and godly Father has given us. This is what we shall one day be completely and joyfully in heaven. So look out for that sense of insecurity and coldness. And we get a sense of growing self-dependency, of course. Uh, that sense in which we don't actually need God today particularly. I know he's Lord. I'll keep you know, doing what he says. But do I need his salvation, as it were, today? His mercy today. That was a point very much made. I've mentioned this before, but I always find it very striking. Luther, when he nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, the first was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. By which he, said, by which he meant not that we do not make progress in the Christian life, but that we make progress in the Christian life precisely through regular repentance and faith. That is the way. In other words, Luther's point, and it's the point of the parable, and it's made so often, is this, that the way into the Christian life is the way on in the Christian life. The way into the Christian life through repentance and faith is the way on in the Christian life through growing repentance, growing faith. That is the way of transformation. The posture of humility, uh, humility is supposed to be permanent. That is the posture of spiritual growth. How would that reframe our interactions with people when they get on our nerves? I know that um, the tendency for me is to immediately uh, think, um, what's wrong with them? Isn't it? I won't say isn't it, because I don't know if that's true for you, but it's true for me. That's my, that's, the issue is, what's, you know, what's up with them? And um, I wonder why they're like that. Why are they like that? Um, what aspect of God's mercy do they really need? Um, and of course, this calls me back and makes me remember that in all my interactions, my first instinct must be, Where do I need God's mercy in this, to navigate this? Where does Christ need to be my savior in this? Where am I unfinished, as it were? Because we all are, and we all will be until we are raised with resurrection bodies. What does this interaction, this slight breakdown, reveal about me, reveal about my heart, my tendencies, about where I need God's salvation, where I need his grace, or the ongoing work of his salvation, I should say? How would that transform me? How would that question of where do I need God's mercy today, how does that open me up, you see? Because when we ask that question, we're immediately opening ourselves up, not only to a right sense of uh, looking at where, where, where we need to grow, but you see, with that comes a right joy in then applying God, because God, God says, yes, and as you do that, I will apply my healing grace to that, and I'll grow you, and I'll transform you. So it's a joyful thing. It's not a sort of a... Um, Again, it's not a cold mechanical thing. Oh, I've got to look at my own heart. It's because I'm saying as I do that, and as I'm open with God about where, I'm, where I fall short, and I can be open with him because I know that I don't need to pretend I'm better than I am because I know that's not the way of salvation. The religious narrative is not playing in my heart. Because I'm saved by grace, I can open the entirety of myself up to him and say, Lord, show me where I'm unfinished. Show me where I'm not yet like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and give me that mercy that transforms, that grace, that spirit that transforms me and makes me more like the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the way, of course, of joy. That is the way of joy. Luther said this, we're not yet what we shall be, but we're growing towards it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That is the heartbeat of the Christian life. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. It's why we need Jesus to be our savior day by day. The way into the Christian life is repentance and faith and reliance on that self-same mercy of God. That is the way on in the Christian life. Every day Jesus is in my life. And every day he's there as Lord. So I seek to submit to his will and his ways and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And every day he's there as Savior. I need his mercy to do that as I repent of where I've fallen short and as I open myself up to receive his mercy and his grace by which he continues that work of transformation in me. So my prayer for myself and for us is that we would be those who are captivated and enthralled by the Lord Jesus day by day, both as Lord, but also as Savior, ever reliant on his mercy. Amen.